Hi everyone, this week we spoke to Yoni Ashel, who's completing a PhD in clinical psychology at Colorado Boulder University in the States. His work looks particularly at chronic pain and whether it can be learned or unlearned, as well as compassion and empathy. Yoni's got a really cool journey to getting into this area through computer science and it was really fascinating to have him a guest, especially given my past with chronic pain. I hope you really enjoyed the episode and if you do, like us on iTunes and give us a subscribe. Hi Yoni, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thanks. Hi Harry. So do you want to start by giving us a kind of overview of, of your personal and professional relationship to kind of mental health and what you what you work in? That's a good question. So um professionally i started i'll start with the professional and we'll work in the personal i i started my work in compassion and compassion meditation and particularly the um the brain correlates and the brain system supporting empathy and compassion and how different meditation programs can can impact those systems and more uh recently i have been working on chronic pain and different psychological treatments for chronic pain uh, because we think chronic pain actually has a big kind of brain component uh, to it. And those are, um, so I've been using functional MRI, which is a brain imaging technique, uh, to study both of those. And um, there's, a, there's a personal aspect to guess, both of those pieces, the, com- the compassion meditation piece and the, the back and the chronic pain piece. I got really into meditation when I was younger. I think I was fascinated with that idea that we could, you know, control our minds and our minds could shape our reality. And by, you know, using different practices, we could be happier and healthier. And like, you know, was that how was how would that work? And is that really true? And and I um I spent some time in Jerusalem. I actually spent two years there studying at a place called the Prades Institute, uh, which uh, is a house of study for Jewish traditional texts and spiritual practices and, and delving into that there. And um, at some point I actually found out about this is all could be studied scientifically, which I did not know um, at the time that there was actually like a science uh, of a uh, contemplative science of, of uh, all these questions of how, you know, how these meditation practices could impact our, our, our lives and um, more broadly, things we can do beyond meditation to make us happier and healthier. And I, I took a turn towards science. And um, so I, I found a position here at University of Colorado Boulder with uh, my mentors, Dr. Tor Wager and Dr. Sona Demijan. And I started working on a grant they had studying compassion meditation. So your background wasn't in kind of psychology or psychiatry, it was software engineering. Yeah, that's right. So I started as as a software engineer, and I worked in that field for a couple of years, and it was all right, but it wasn't what really got me excited or you know kept me up at night thinking about the questions or the problems. Yeah, and then I went off to to Jerusalem to study, and and then after that, I realized I could kind of combine this background in quantitative methods and you know, science and engineering with the things I was really interested in, which is the mind. And uh, that's where I am now. Have you, so have you found that having having that different background has been able for you to offer kind of new perspectives and new, um, and new pathways to the kind of more traditional 
pathways people may have taken into that kind of profession? Um, maybe. I, I definitely, what I do a lot of is data analysis and it is really helps uh, having that background in terms of doing really rigorous data analysis. You know, there's a lot of concerns um, about research more broadly and certainly including meditation research that the quality of the research might not be that strong or as strong as we thought. And um, I think having the quantitative background has really helped me conduct what I believe to be rigorous research. Um, so that's the piece where I, I you know, that, that really matters to me. And we were just talking about uh, a book just now where, where they kind of looked at um, the good science and why it's good um, and, and what that's shown, but also the kind of um, calling out the bad science where there's kind of claims have been made that stuff like mindfulness can solve a lot of things that it probably can't do. Um, but your specific work started with pain and there, and there is... Um, there's good evidence that it can help people in pain, isn't there? Yeah, that's that's right. actually the f one of the first in, you know like entrees of mindfulness into the world of Western psychology was in um, what, something in John John Kabat-Zinn's work on mindfulness-based stress reduction. So John Kabat-Zinn uh, went to the East and studied mindfulness and came back to Mass General Hospital in, in Boston and uh, realized that some of these techniques could be helpful for, for many of his patients. And he created this eight-week program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which has been extensively studied since then and as a treatment for chronic pain, and it's been adapted for other conditions. And it also spawned uh, Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, uh, which is a, you know, based off a combination of MBSR and cognitive therapy. And um, I was actually just listening to the episode with you and Chuck Raison, I think it was two or three episodes ago, and uh, he was talking about MBCT and how he thought that was potentially one of the most strongly supported uh, findings, like really kind of reliable findings from the, from the research that we know like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy can help with preventing depressive relapse for people with a history of depression. And, and so, yeah, it's all kind of related in, in that way. Yeah, and my kind of issue um, that brought me to this whole kind of field was actually chronic pain um, and when I first saw my psychologist he suggested you know I've been suffering it for a few years and and you know things weren't getting better physiotherapy uh, x-rays MRIs all that kind of stuff and when he kind of suggested uh, meditation or mindfulness I think it was he suggested in particular I just kind of thought how on earth can that possibly help you know right this is a physical pro I've got a physical problem it's nothing to do with the brain um, but the work you've kind of done takes a kind of different approach to looking at that doesn't it yes that is a great question that's very common and we're so um, conditioned to think of pain as reflecting a problem in our body because that's its main function in our lives you put your hand in the fire the hand hurts uh, that mean that's because it's about you know tissue is about to get burned. You take it out of the fire. Yes, there's a real threat there, and you know just from millions of years of evolution, you know, pain generally has meant tissue damage. Something is wrong in the body. But these neuroscience uh, findings over the past couple of decades have actually opened a totally different perspective on uh, that, suggesting that 
pain can be perpetuated by changes in the brain in the central nervous system, the spine, and that pain can be, um, in a sense, a false alarm. I'm, when I say false alarm, I mean, you know, first, let's, let's take the word alarm. So pain is a danger alarm mechanism, right? When you feel pain, danger, 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 the alarm's going off. That's the function, you know, to motivate the, the person or the animal to take uh, protective behaviors. And then it could be a false alarm in the sense that you could feel pain, but there's actually no threat to the body. Um, so this, this can happen. There's a process called central sensitization, where your spinal cord and your brain become hypersensitive to inputs, and they can start interpreting even uh, inputs that are not dangerous or threatening as painful. So there's a condition called allodynia, which is where non-painful, or sorry, non-dangerous touch is painful. So someone just gently stroking your arm could hurt, even though there's nothing dangerous about someone lightly stroking your arm, but it creates pain because of this process called central sensitization, where it just imagine like a, um, something like, like a car alarm that gets so sensitive that even when a leaf falls in it, the alarm starts going off because it just become too sensitive. What also, or in my case, what also happens is you start to kind of look for the pain. So when you when you associate certain actions with pain, your your brain starts to look for them first. So you almost start flaring up before it happens. And yeah. I think another really important point to make is that um, is what my psychologist said to me as well. You know, the pain might be in a kind of way imaginary, um, but the real it still hurts. It still hurts like a normal pain. Um, and the kind yes. of classic really good example is um i can't remember where the study was or or who it was but of the construction worker who puts a nail through his foot and you know all of the scans and stuff show he's coming up in pain um but then when he gets to a and e uh he takes a boot off and the, the nail has kind of gone in between his two toes and not like into his toes i don't know if i exactly. completely butchered that explanation but yeah but that's right so he yeah, he sees this nail poking up, and you know, through his boot. He thinks he's, you know, he thinks this nail's gone through his foot. He's screaming in agony. He gets to A and E, which I guess is the, you know, your equivalent of uh, the you know, emergency room here. They take the boot off, and there's not a drop of blood, not a scratch. And the moment he sees that, his pain disappears, because he thought he was in tremendous danger, right? Like this nail's going through your foot, and then it turned out he wasn't. So that was that that, but that his pain was real and. You know, that's the thing. The pain is always real. It's, the pain is always real. The question is, what's causing the pain? Is there a problem in the body that's driving the pain? Or has the central nervous system sensitized so that now the pain alarm is going off, even though it's just a leaf falling on the car and actually there's no threat? So, so the key um, is going to be an accurate diagnosis, really figuring out for each person what's driving your pain. And um yeah, what was it for you, Harry? Do you know? Was it was there something wrong with your body, or was it just? I think originally, yes. I think I I had a shoulder injury, um, but then I think that kind of um, because of worry and anxiety over it, it kind of morphed into uh, back, elbow, neck, um, neck stuff, which maybe wasn't a physical problem. Um, 
and then once the physical the actual physical issue of the shoulder went away um because i've become so sensitized to it uh it kind of carried on I, th- I think that's probably what happened i think that's exactly right and that's that um there's this study from 2013 uh, that really demonstrates this. This is from um, Vanya Apkarian's group at Northwestern University, where they uh, recruited subjects who had recently injured their back in the past uh, six to 12 weeks. And if you if you've injured your back in about um, if you've injured your back and the pain is still there six to 12 weeks later, at that point, the data suggests there's about a 50% chance that the pain is going to become chronic and 50% chance that's gonna go away, right? Most back injuries resolve within a few weeks. So if it's already lingered for six plus weeks, it's becoming more and more likely that it might hang out for longer, you know, a few months, a few years. And so they recruited people in this in this uh, stage and they scanned their brains and then they followed them for two years, scanning their brain every half year for those two years. And as they expected, about half of those people, their pain uh, got better, remitted, no more pain, right? The injury. Uh, passed, the pain passed, and the other half of the people, the, their pain chronified. So two years later, suddenly this back injury had become chronic back pain. And they had these brain scans uh, along the way. And what they saw was that in the people whose their pain um, chronified, became chronic, that the pain shifted to different brain circuits. Initially, and soon after the injury, the pain was associated with activity in these kind of traditional pain processing circuits, like somatosensory cortex, anterior insula. These are the areas that will be engaged whenever you you stub your toe or something like that, just like regular old pain. But two years later, once the pain had become chronic, uh, the researchers found that different brain systems were associated with the pain including the medial prefrontal cortex, which is a part of the brain, which is really related to emotion and learning. And and they titled the paper, Shape-Shifting Pain. It's just like Harry, you were talking about, you saw your pain morph from one thing to another. They basically saw this pain morphing in the brain where it, it transitioned to, to, being, a, to you know, being supported or maintained by these different brain circuits related to emotion and learning. And the, what what I took away from that paper was just that chronic pain can be learned, which is a crazy idea that our brains can learn chronic pain. And w- when you explain that to to someone, is there is that realization um, is it enough to to kind of help them? I suppose unlearn those things, or or are there specific ways that you have to get people to to try and to try and and because I think there's a real difference between um knowing that it might be a kind of learnt pain and being able to uh to apply that in your everyday life so being able right. to become pain free i suppose right it's a great question and i actually think i have a data you know a data and an empirical answer for you because just uh, earlier this week there was a study that was just published in the jam neurology from a group out of australia and they they took people with a low chronic low back pain, or actually acute low back pain. So they had recently injured their back, and they gave them these two uh, one-hour educational sessions where they went through, 
excuse me, they went through this sort of explanation similar to, to you know, how we're talking now. And they compared that to what they call a placebo education, which is a funny idea for me. But basically, the, the, the nurse or whoever it was was just like listening empathically and validating, but wasn't really educating them in any way about their pain. And what they found was that there was a small, um, there was a slightly better outcomes in the um, education group that got all this pain neuroscience education, but that sl small difference was actually not statistically significant. And, and they concluded that there's really very little benefit for most people from just knowing this. Uh, and, and there's been a few other studies that have come to similar conclusions, actually. And so my looking at the data, it suggests to me that just knowing like uh, just getting this education is probably not enough for most people as you can know it, but then how do you integrate it? Yeah, I, I, I can completely relate to that because it took me a few years after kind of understanding, um, understanding what you were saying um, to be able to start addressing the issue, you know, because it's something that you can really feel someone telling you that, you know, it, it's not a real thing um but it's still there it's quite hard to to rationalize that right and that's the, this is a very tricky edge that we're walking on saying it's like a real thing not a real thing imaginary and it's so important to always remind people that the pain is real the pain is real the pain is very real the question is what is causing the pain is there real damage to your body or has has the brain become hypersensitive to input and um or, or something like that and the brain is causing the pain and many people will I've had you know I've also I'm seeing patients and I've had patients like storm out of the office uh, when I try to explain this you know what you're saying my pain isn't real and they get red in the face and they storm out and then I realize I really botched it you know you really didn't didn't explain it well so it's um it's sensitive and and that's why actually I think the neuroscience is so helpful and so important because then so if you tell people there's no problem in my, you know, there's no problem in your body that's driving the pain, well, the next question is, okay, well, doc, why am I in pain? And then if you can turn to the neuroscience and say, well, look, we know this process called central sensitization, yada, 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 that we see the pain morphing to different brain systems, engaging the medial prefrontal cortex, yada, yada, yada. Then people, they get it. You need to give someone an explanation. They need, people want to know why they're in pain. So you have to be able to, to tell them that. And that's like, that's the starting point. And what what kind of uptake is as this research had in the medical community in in kind of front facing um, GPs and and practitioners? In the U.S., very little. That's that's clear. Um, yeah, someone was just telling me in England that they they went to uh, the NHS for uh, wrist pain and they got this kind of treatment. So I don't I don't know if it's a little more prevalent in England, but in the U.S., I would say there's a maybe a few doctors in each major city at best that that would treat patients from this perspective um in the world of psychology it's also a bit better but like for example i'm in the clinical psychology uh, training program here doing my doctorate and we did not get a single uh you know single minute of training in chronic pain in my program because for many psychologists pain is outside the realm of uh, what they work with 
you know, oh, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, anger, sure, let's let's work. But you have something, you know, some kind of physical symptom, oh, go see your doctor. And and conversely, if you you know, many doctors, they'll, they'll you know, if you say, Oh, well, someone's you know, emotional life could be contributing to their pain, doctors often won't really know what to do with that, even if they believe it. And so so there's this gap where people are you know, patients are falling through the gaps because the psychologists don't know how to work with the body symptoms and the doctors don't know or don't want or don't have time to work with the uh, emotional the emotional life. That's absolutely fascinating. I think I can identify with that because um, I, I actually, I think, no, the, the GPs I saw were good and they realized that um, the pain that I had could could largely be a, a psychological thing but then um, the trouble was there weren't a, the psychological side didn't have the appropriate resources um, so I was quite lucky that I was um, uh, that I was able to go to a private psychologist who, who dealt with this health psychology and particularly you know his expertise was chronic pain um, but I can imagine if if you know I was in a different situation I would have fallen through those through those cracks as well um, yeah. and so the second kind of string to your research bow um, is kind of compassion and yeah. um, I was just wondering if you could give like an introduction into compassion and, and loving kindness meditation like what is it um, and how, how can it actually help people sure yeah we um, so we started our, our research on you know, seeking to understand. So we were interested in this technique called compassion meditation. This is a meditation technique that has Buddhist origins, but as it's kind of taught in the West today, it's a completely secular practice. And there's a few different varieties of it. Uh, loving kindness meditation is uh, like a close cousin. And so to give a, like a sense of the practice, so so in our study, we designed our um, compassion meditation program with Roshi Joan Halifax, who is a Zen abbot in uh, New Mexico here in, in the U.S. And the idea here in her program was to cultivate both sensitivity to other people's suffering and at the same time equanimity so as not to get overwhelmed by other people's suffering because... Uh, the you know there, there can be this kind of yo-yo thing that happens where someone's suffering you engage and you get overwhelmed and you pull back and that's not really so helpful uh as helpful for them as it could be and then you as the other person is getting burned out and so how do we um, stay sensitive and engaged without being overwhelmed and one of the as we started the, our, our research though our first you know our first aim was to get a better handle on what is compassion, what is empathy, because these are really vague, fuzzy terms, and what are we talking about, and uh, how can we measure these, basically, you know, because if you want to study something, you have to be able to measure it, and it turns out that measuring compassion is actually quite difficult. I, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't, you know, I think we took a crack at it. I don't, I think there's still a lot of work left to do in terms of figure out how do you really measure compassion. Uh, what we we took the approach of you know functional brain imaging, and we we looked at the distinction between these two emotions that are uh, so between empathy and compassion, 
basically, we also call it empathic care and empathic distress. And they're closely related, uh, but distinct. So the idea is that empathic care is this feeling of warmth, tenderness, affiliation, uh, desire to approach and help. And it's thought evolutionarily to be related to um, you know, caretaking instincts that a parent would have for their offspring or in mate selection as well. You know, you want to choose a partner who's going to care for you. Yeah. <clears throat> and we distinguish that from empathic distress, which is a negative arousal, kind of unpleasant feeling that we feel when we encounter someone else who's suffering. And that's associated with a mixed approach avoid motivation. And we, uh, and what we, we had people uh, listen to these stories during brain scanning that evoked both these emotions and different time courses of these different emotions. So it could be a story, uh, so a subject would be lying in the brain scanner and looking at a picture of a young boy and hearing the story, which would go something like, you know, Jesse is an orphan, his parents weren't able to care for him, and they had to leave him at the orphanage. He suffered from many medical problems. Then another, then a family uh, was able to, took him from the orphanage and was able to care for him. And now he's doing better in school and is making friends. And so a story something like that. And we had people rate uh, what they were feeling. Um, they're rating their empathic care, the feelings of warmth and tenderness and empathic distress. And what we found with these two different brain systems that were preferentially related to each of these emotions so the empathic care is prefer preferentially related to these um, medial, medial orbital frontal cortex and ventral striatal uh, systems that, and, and this, um, this area near the septal nuclei that collectively have been related to uh, reward, uh, value, so valuing something, uh, motivation, as well as a parenting behavior. That's particularly the, the septal nuclei in rodent research has been found to play an important role in, in parenting behavior. So that was related to empathic care. And for empathic distress, we found activation um, in these somatosensory and premotor areas, uh, which is surprising to us at first, because you know, what is you know, somatosensory, premotor, like, you know, feeling empathic distress, what's that about? But until I... Um, I was reading through the research and, and, and realized that there's a lot of work on, on it's called somatosensory mirroring, where you is it, there's certain neurons that fire both when they are performing in, involved in performing an action and observing an action. So if you if your hand's getting stroked or you see a hand getting stroked, those neurons fire the same in both those conditions. So they're called mirror neurons because they have this mirroring function or property, and and that's what, and that's been observed um, in macaque monkeys and in humans, and um, <clears throat> probably other species as well, if um, if we went looking for them. And so we found that, so so these neurons live in the somatosensory and premotor areas, and so we found that empathic distress was related to these mirroring, um, to these mirror neuron kind of regions, and and that was really interesting and really agreed with, with a, you know, agrees with a kind of intuitive understanding that when we're feeling distress for someone, it could be related to a mirroring process where we're taking on what they're feeling and feeling what they're feeling. And then if they're suffering, well, we start suffering too. Yeah. And, and there's also stuff to say that these 
these kind of um, signals can be trained. Um, I don't know if I've got that right. But... Yeah, so that was the next aim. That was, so, so just to, I know that might have been a bit technical, but just to summarize, basically that there's, there's a biological difference between, I call it caring and sharing. You can share someone's emotions or you can care for them, and that's different from sharing their emotions. And those, are, those options are both available. It's not that one is good or one is bad, but many people, I think, are not so aware of that distinction and that there's actually a choice in how we engage with other people. You encounter someone who's suffering, you can kind of meet them where they're at, share their experience, empathize, uh, like have empathy, which I'm defining as more of a sharing process, or you can care for them, which is cultivate this feeling of uh, warmth, kindness, and caring for, for them without mirroring or feeling exactly what they're feeling so um those are options and so we we designed this compassion meditation training program and one of the ideas was to try to help cultivate this caring response without too much of a sharing response because we hypothesize that kind of too much sharing too much distress people burn out it's not really helpful for anybody and um so so we started studying compassion meditation but one of our, our, our first questions was, well, what if it's all placebo? What if meditation is all placebo, right? Because we, uh, we started what we were talking at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, we want to we approach this rigorously and we want to really take this with a kind of a skeptical scientific um, approach. So we designed this funny condition for comparison to the compassion meditation where our, we gave our subjects a nasal spray which we told them was oxytocin and gave them a, a scientific information sheet describing how oxytocin is like this love hormone that increases compassion, you know, take this uh, once a day and you might start feeling increased compassion. So it was this whole uh, placebo condition and our subjects uh, at the end of the study, we debriefed them, told them it's actually placebo. They um, pretty much all told us they believed that they were taking oxytocin. Um, and uh, we had this also this third condition in this comparison group in this study, which is a um, where subjects were simply listened to a story of someone who was suffering every day. So um, just to back up a little bit, so in the compassion meditation condition, you do these meditations. So these meditations would include practices like, um, well, one of the uh, kind of mantras of the practice was soft front, strong back, soft front, strong back, as this sort of way to stay engaged and open and sensitive to other people's suffering. That's the soft front. At the same time, the strong back and not getting overwhelmed, you know, staying grounded in your own experience, staying grounded in yourself. And, um, and so they would do these and the practices, including um, sending, repeating these phrases of blessing for other people. Uh, may you be free of suffering. May you be safe. May you be happy as you're thinking of someone who's suffering. Also imagining other people as young, as small children, uh, which helps us think of them as blameless for their suffering. And um, and so participants were doing a 20-minute meditation a day um, on an on a iPhone recording, like a, this app that we, we made for participants. They listened to a story each day and uh, of suffering, of someone who's suffering. And in the placebo group, they listened to a story of someone who's suffering after taking the placebo. And then this third condition, people just listen to a story every day. And um, just to, to be brief, really what we found was that the compassion meditation condition, uh, participants in that condition really increased in their 
uh, report of the compassion in their charitable donations, which we asked them to, to make these charitable donations a part of the study, and they increased in activity in this medial orbital frontal uh, cortex and uh, a part of the brainstem that's close to the ventral tegmental area. And these two brain areas have been linked um, well to empathic care and compassion as well as, as and more generally to reward and positive affect. So, so we basically we we saw that compassion meditation increased activity in these brain in, in behavior and in biology, and that's relative to to a placebo control condition. So, uh, we don't so we don't think it's all placebo. Wow, yeah, that's really interesting. And has has this kind of work in kind of compassion and meditation and kind of complicated contemplative practices um do you get much pushback from um from i don't know people who are not not wanting to engage with words like compassion and loving kindness or you know i i it's a good i haven't i actually i haven't i think there's um you know there's a lot of people who aren't interested in that um, but I haven't gotten pushback. They just some people are interested, some people aren't. And there's there's a there's been a culture change that's happening where now mindfulness is a used to be a very fringe area of study, and now it's 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 basically mainstream to study mindfulness. And you know, empathy um, has actually received a lot of study. Um, compassion, not so much. It's a bit different. Uh, but empathy is, you know, and we think, you know, particularly if you eat like psychopathy or autism are associated by empathy deficit. So there's been a lot of work on empathy. Um, but so so it's there's a culture change happening where there's more and more space for for research on this. And um, they're really, you know, there, there's a way of looking at it where people say, oh, that empathy, loving kindness, compassion. That's that's not hard science. But another way of looking at it would be that's the hardest uh, science because it's so hard to measure these things and to really get a get any traction in them so it's it's quite a challenge is it easy to present it as quite a secular thing or do yeah is it hard to to get religious people to engage with it who aren't necessarily um from like a buddhist faith or or can you present it as like a completely secular thing which anyone can do and it can help it's a completely secular thing and anyone can do and, and it can help it really is totally secular and, uh, you know, if you go back to its roots, you know, like, yeah, it might have more of a religious kind, but just like yoga, you know, anyone today can do yoga. You go, it's, you know, everyone, at least in Boulder, I live in Boulder, everyone here does yoga. It's not a problem. And, uh, but if you, I, I don't know as much about the history of yoga, but my sense is that it emerged from some more complex religious systems, but there's no, um, it's, it's available to anyone and. There's not, um, there's not a, a, you know, yeah, there's not a ton of research on it. So in, in terms of, you know, the evidence base and what it can do to help you, I can, I can tell you from my own personal experience and from experience with, with um, some of my clients that it can be really helpful for, for working with forgiveness. Um, if there's, you know, often these grudges that we hold to other people can do more, end up doing more harm to ourselves and never actually hurt the other person. We're just, we're just holding on to these grudges and uh, a great cost to ourselves. And these compassion and the loving kindness practice can help bring heal relationships and, and bring forgiveness or bring understanding. And uh, another use is just to generate uh, positive 
emotion. So it's particularly loving kindness meditation, which is similar to compassion meditation, but it's not focused on people who are suffering. You just think of someone that you love and feel really warmly about and and repeat these phrases to them. You know, may you be safe, may you be happy, and may you um and and can you can imagine like a golden light coming from your heart to envelop them. And actually I do this with my I have two daughters and I kind of sit by their bed at, at night and do this practice toward them and just let my let myself fill with love and warmth towards them. And it's just a lovely practice, like a feel good kind of practice and um, can really help in- enhance positive emotion, which is a pleasure. You kind of touched on it there, but you do this stuff yourself to kind of keep happy and healthy. I, I try to meditate most days. I wish I... I, I aspire to meditate more more regularly. You know, one of my um, like personal meditation teachers, uh, his name is Rabbi James Jacobson Maisel, says, who's an amazing teacher. And he, I was recently on a retreat with him, and he was sharing how he had re- more recently come to understand how important compassion is for mindfulness. And he was um, sharing, you know, this is from his own experience in his own practice and teaching, you know, the hundreds of an essential piece of mindfulness is to observe non-judgmentally and how hard it is to really be non-judgmental unless there's a quality of love and compassion and that bringing that sense of love and compassion uh, for ourselves and for our own experience can be so helpful and i've really found this to be true to, uh, as well like this self-compassion which is it's a bit of a cheesy word i i think <laughs> self-compassion it sounds I know something about it sounds cheesy to me, but um, but we can be really hard on ourselves. We can be so, so hard on ourselves. Just to like finish off, where can we find more about your research um, and what you do? Right, about the about the compassion meditation? Yeah, and just everything that, that you do in research. Um... Oh, gotcha. Yes, yes. Um, you could follow me on Twitter. So I... At Yoni Ashar, Y-O-N-I-A-S-H-A-R, would probably be the best way to follow me, uh, or an occasional Google search, because uh, we're working on the chronic back pain study right now that we think uh, that we're excited to um, to be publishing those results. That should be out sometime in the next half year or year. And I'll put out a plug that there is a documentary being made that I'm involved with that's um, tentatively titled uh, Pain Brain. So and that might be coming out in the next year or two and to look for that. It's going to be a great piece about the brain and chronic pain. Brilliant. That sounds fascinating. Yoni, thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Harry. Hi everyone, just a quick reminder that although we find the stuff in the podcast useful, if you're suffering with your mental health, always go to a mental health professional. Details on how to do this can be found through the charity Mind or through the NHS website.